Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We begin this episode with a reading from Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, ish. To everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to rock, a time to dance, a time to headbang, and a time to chill. Okay, I, I, I don't think that last part is in any edition of the Standard Bible. I, I might have made that up. But here's what I'm trying to say. The universe moves in cycles. Things are born, build up, peak, and fade away. But they don't necessarily die. They just go into some kind of stasis, a type of hibernation before something triggers a rebirth. And if the conditions are right, the whole process repeats again. This happens a lot with music. Certain genres, certain scenes have periodic revivals. Now, let me give you an example. In the late 1950s, all the cool kids were into folk music. Stuff that was a generation old, a generation removed, suddenly became the thing all the hipsters were listening to. You know, the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary. This translated into a big boom for modern folk music that eventually manifested itself in Bob Dylan and everybody who followed him. Around the same time in the UK, the big thing was trad jazz. English hipsters who were unimpressed with this new rock and roll thing decided that traditional jazz that was originally big 60 years previous was actually where it was at. Again, there was a revival with new artists like Acker Bilk, Kenny Ball, and Monty Sunshine. And suddenly, New Orleans Dixieland was in vogue. Things lasted until about 1965 before it all died away. In 1973, 50s rock and roll made a comeback. American Graffiti, Happy Days, Elton John singing songs like Crocodile Rock, stuff like that. Alternative rock has been around long enough so that it's seen its own internal revivals. Sounds from alt-rock history that have been rediscovered in advance by a new generation of fans, sometimes several generations. Even the punk rock of the middle 1970s was a revival of sorts. At its heart... That punk was a back-to-basics form of rock and roll, but done with speed and a sneer. And that's where we're going to start. This is Alt-Rock Revival's Part 1, Punk. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the first part of a series where everything old became new again. We've been calling a certain segment of the rock universe alternative for almost 50 years now. And over that half century, there have been a number of times when everything old became new again. Older sounds were rediscovered and fashioned into something just a little bit different. And we're going to start with the punk revival of the 1990s. Okay, wait, hold on. Uh, if we're going to do this right, we, we must acknowledge that the original punk rock explosion 
of the middle 1970s was itself a revival. By 1973, there was a sense that the original promise at rock had gone off the rails. First, we had all these prog rock bands that seemed to aspire to creating new forms of classical music. Lots of complexity, lots of musical virtuosity. Definitely interesting stuff, but who could ever hope to play like that? And who would want to? That's one thing that was going on. Second, rock had graduated to playing stadiums. Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, the Who. They were now multimillionaires living in mansions who had lost touch with the everyday fan. And third, the music being played on AM radio was increasingly awful. Now, remember that AM radio was where most people still got their music back then. And yes, some cities were lucky to have proper FM rock stations, and more people were getting cars with FM radios, but AM still ruled. And the stuff those stations played was safe and bland and dull. Uh, I think this will make my point. The number one song for 1973 was Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Don. That was followed by Jim Croce and Bad Bad Leroy Brown. And like I mentioned earlier, there was a renewed fascination with the music of the 1950s, which meant nothing to anyone who was born after 1957. Things got so dire that a small group of people decided that rock and roll needed an enema, a complete reboot. And this is where punk rock comes in. Punk rock was not revolutionary. It was, in fact, reactionary. Rock was stripped back to its essence in terms of instrumentation, arrangement, performance, and attitude. Simplicity was praised. And if you weren't very good at your instrument, so what? The rule was that if you had the guts to say it, then you should be able to, regardless of your ability, your gender, or sexual orientation. The Ramones, from their self-titled debut album, released on April the 23rd, 1976. They loved old-school 50s music, as well as the girl group sounds of the 1960s. So in that sense, this new-slash-old music that became known as punk had a lot more in common with the 50s revival than some would want to admit. The similarities were there, except that this new approach was faster and harder and often much angrier. Here's an example. In 1959, a British rockabilly singer named Vince Taylor released a single called Pledge In My Love. It was an okay song, but the B-side was so much better. Well, my baby drove up in a brand new Cadillac. Oh, my baby drove up in a brand new Cadillac. The song was covered by a British group called the Downliners Sect. Then came a cover by the Renegades that became a big hit in Finland. This led to a Swedish group called Hepstars releasing their own version, and then another Swedish band called Shamrocks recorded it, scoring a hit in France. More covers followed. The Sicky Boys in 1976, Kim Fowley in 1977, and we finally reached The Clash in 1979. The Clash, one of the major participants of the punk rock explosion of the 1970s. And before we leave the notion of punk being reactionary, let's remember that the Sex Pistols were fans of the Monkees. Yeah, that manufactured TV band from the 1960s. When the Pistols played live, 
they often roared through this B-side to the Monkees' single, I'm a Believer. This is I'm Not Your Steppin' Stone. Now that we've established that punk began as a revival of rock and roll in general back in the mid-70s, we can now go on to the punk rock revival of the 1990s. It's not like punk was dead, but it had receded into the margins, drowned out by the waves of synthesizer bands, hair metal groups, and various floods of pop music. But punk rock music and the punk rock attitude survived. It mutated into subgenres like hardcore and oi and anarcho-punk. And the central tenets of doing it yourself ingrained itself into many other genres loosely grouped under the umbrella of post-punk. Now, these sounds were not punk, but you could tell by listening that punk or something like it had definitely happened. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the bottom line is that punk was still there. It just needed a way to break out again. And that came on August the 27th, 1991. I was working on the radio that day when somebody walked in with a new CD single. It was 11.40 a.m. I remember it distinctly. Put this on, the guy said. Let's see what happens. So I did. And, well, nothing was quite the same afterward. Now, here is the truth about that song. It was great. No denying that. But the thinking was, at the record label, that this was going to be a very tough sell to the public. First of all, these Nirvana guys were very vocal about being punk rock and their influences and approach to everything they did. And a dozen years earlier, this punk rock attitude failed to attract much mainstream attention in North America because it was just too raw, too rough, too angry. So why would things be any different this time? Second, Smells Like Teen Spirit was a very heavy song for that time. Most of rock radio was still in the thrall of the age of hair metal. We'd reached peak power ballad, too, with bands like Whitesnake and Poison. It was rocky, but sentimental and, and let's face it, sappy kind of stuff. And third, alt-rock radio at the time was about Depeche Mode and In Excess, New Order, The Cure, Erasure and left-leaning alternative music that was more often than not keyboard-based. Other bands who would come before, and I'm thinking of the Pixies and Jane's Addiction, did okay, but they didn't really you know, break through to the mainstream. Again, Teen Spirit was a fabulous track, a great song, and we all wanted it to do well. But we really didn't have much faith in it. Even the record company wasn't keen on it. The real first single from Nevermind was going to be Lithium, Teen Spirit was just a trial balloon to test the waters. It was never meant to be a hit. But it was. It was a monster that did well everywhere, including on the top 40 charts, where it reached the top 10 in 21 countries and all the way to number one in four. So not only did Teen Spirit usher in the age of grunge, it was the spark punk rock needed to mount a comeback. And this time, it would be massive. This is chapter one of a look at the various revivals that we've seen throughout the history of alternative rock. And this time, we're looking at the punk rock revival of the 1990s. Before this thing could happen, the slate needed to be wiped clean by grunge. As grunge grew in popularity, 
we began to learn more about who influenced these grunge groups. There was a lot of punk name-checking going on. The Ramones, The Clash, Black Flag, Buzzcocks, Sex Pistols, The Germs, Husker Du. This, inevitably, led new fans back to the progenitors of this art form, which really helped. But more important was the herd mentality of the record industry. You know how it works. Once a successful trend is identified, there's a stampede to sign and promote acts for that space. With grunge, it started with more grunge bands, and then grunge-like bands, and then grunge-adjacent bands, and then any sort of band that could be classified as alternative, and that included groups working the punk thing. Again, punk had never really gone away, but instead it settled into various enclaves around North America and were all supported by local communities. But unless you were part of those local scenes, you might not have known that any of this music existed. Such was the case around the Bay Area of California. A group first called Sweet Children recorded some material before changing their name to Green Day. In the midst of the stampede to find the next big thing in this new alternative trend, they were signed to a major record deal. And here's where things got weird. Green Day's Dookie album was released on February 1st, 1994. It got good reviews, but it started off slow. Initial sales were lukewarm. But then came April 8th, 1994. The world was shocked by the death of Kurt Cobain. And in hindsight, we can see that this event marked the beginning of the end of the public's and the recording industry's laser focus on grunge. With Kurt gone, there was a need to move on to something else. Okay, like what? Well, how about some of this new punk rock that's floating around out there? Green Day, just sitting there. Waiting at the plate. After the death of Kurt, the focus of alt-rock went through a period of transition through 1994, which was a crucial year for what we're talking about with the punk revival. This transition actually moved very smoothly. Bands like Green Day were a perfect antidote to both the death of Kurt Cobain and the world-weariness vibe of grunge in general. Besides, the world economy had emerged from a terrible recession in the early 90s, about when grunge started, and everyone started to feel pretty good about things. The Cold War was over, there was a music-loving president in the White House, and in the UK there was a prime minister who was an ex-musician. The gloom of grunge was now a little out of date, so it was time for a switch. Dookie was a massive hit, selling somewhere north of 20 million copies worldwide. The songs and the videos were everywhere. So, what kicked in? Uh-huh, the stampede effect. Forget about signing grunge-like bands, it was all about punk now. Another great white hope in those days was Bad Religion. They'd been kicking around since 1980, releasing indie albums through their own label called Epitaph. When Green Day's record label sensed that something was happening with Dookie, Somebody was dispatched to get Bad Religion's name on a contract. This took some convincing, since true punks and multinational record labels don't always mix, but the game had changed. First, groups like Nirvana and Sonic Youth showed that you could sign to a major label and not lose your creative independence. Second, being in an indie band and running your own label is hard. The business of getting your albums into the stores, promoting releases, and going through the process of tracking albums sold and the hassle of collecting that money, that's just a huge drain on time and energy and everything else. 
Sonic Youth signed with a major because they got tired of always chasing money from whatever indie label they were signed to. R.E.M. signed with a major label because with an indie, they were on an endless treadmill of recording and touring and recording and touring with no hope of breaking out of that cycle. Same with Husker Du. And Nirvana signed a major label deal because Kurt Cobain wanted more people to hear his songs. So, Bad Religion decided that they would take a shot. And on September 6, 1994, they released their eighth album and their first major label record. It was called Stranger Than Fiction. Bad Religion took a lot of heat for signing to a major. Many of the faithful accused them of selling out their punk principles. But the move did pay off. Stranger Than Fiction sold close to a million copies in the U.S. and also went gold in Canada. And thanks to this deal, more people than ever before became aware of Bad Religion and this punk rock thing in general. There was another benefit to Bad Religion, too. Remember that they ran their own record label. If Epitaph could produce a band like them... Who else on this roster might be worth checking out? This is when we go back up to the Bay Area for a band with a fortuitous connection. Not only was Rancid label mates with Bad Religion, but they devolved out of a band called Operation Ivy, a group that was revered by a young Billy Joe Armstrong, who, of course, was in Green Day, who, of course, were really hot at the time. Rancid songs were short and tight and loaded with melody, the perfect complement to what the kids were clamoring for with Green Day. So let's get them signed to a contract. Rancid met the industry halfway. They stayed with Epitaph, which pleased bad religion and preserved their punk rock ethics, but they agreed to have their Epitaph records distributed and stealthily promoted by Warner Brothers, one of the majors. <laughs> Perfect. Giddy up. This is from Rancid's second album, Let's Go. It was released on June 21st, 1994. There's Rancid and Salvation from the Let's Go album. Okay, so that's two solid punk rock wins for the recording industry served up by Epitaph. You you got anything else? Well, it just so happened that they did. There was this skate punk band from Los Angeles that had been banging around for almost a decade before Epitaph took them on in 1991. And in the summer of 1994, they were about to release their fifth studio album. They never signed the major deal, but thanks to Epitaph's relationship with the Majors and how Green Day blew up in the summer of 94, these guys kind of went along for the ride and ended up selling more than a million copies of their new record, which they called Punk in Drublick. This is no effects. And don't call me white. Released on July 19, 1994, no effects from the Punk in Drublick album. Now, they could have been a much bigger deal in the whole punk rock revival thing of the 90s, but no effects had a policy of not letting MTV play their videos. So, uh, yeah, that kind of hurt. By the time we got to the fall of 1994, this new wave of punk rock had become a mainstream thing, suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere. And there was still more to come. Stand by. We need to backtrack just a little bit in our discussion of the punk rock revival of the 1990s. As we've seen, things had swung from grunge to punk, especially after the death of Kurt Cobain in April of 94, 
We had Green Day and Dookie. We had Bad Religion and Stranger Than Fiction. We had Rancid and Let's Go. We had No Effects and Punk and Drubluck. 1994 was an amazing year for this kind of music. But we haven't yet talked about one last band, The Offspring. They'd released a couple of albums before landing on, you guessed it, Epitaph. And almost no one noticed when their third album came out because the release date was April 8th, 1994. Which, if that sounds familiar, is because that's the day the universe heard that Kurt Cobain had died. Like Dookie, the Smash album from The Offspring started slow, which really didn't surprise the band because they didn't have high expectations. If it sold 25,000 copies, that would have been considered a major victory. Besides, what could you expect for an album that had a recording budget of $20,000 and was released on this indie label? But, defying all predictions, the record started selling and would not stop. By October, it was the number four album on Billboard and at the start of a 101-week run on the album charts. Pretty much everybody was stunned by the success of Smash. It was the first album to go gold and platinum on Epitaph. It has since sold upwards of 15 million copies worldwide. This is the biggest-selling indie album of all time. And here's one of the singles from the record. Let me give you a few tidbits here. At the time this album was written, singer Dexter Holland was working towards a degree in molecular biology. Part of his lab work included Erlenmeyer flasks full of hot and dangerous liquids containing bacteria. One day, he returned to the lab after an hour to find out that the bacteria samples were still too hot because he had left the flasks too close together. He thought to himself, hmm, I got to keep them separated. Okay, you see where we're going? The spoken word bit in the song is performed by Jason Blackball McLean. He was an Offspring superfan who showed up to all the gigs. He got his part in the song as a way to return the favor and because he had an interesting voice and accent. And finally, the song was the subject of a plagiarism case. The issue was the Arabic-sounding passage that was inspired after Dexter took a trip to the Middle East. It was also an homage to a track called Bloodstains by another punk band called Agent Orange, which used a similar guitar figure. In the end, a musicologist was called in to compare the two songs. He ruled that although both guitar bits were based on the Arabian scale, the Offspring passage wasn't the same as what we hear on Bloodstains. So, no lawsuit was ever filed. The Offspring from the multi-multi-multi-multi-platinum album Smash, released in April of 1994. With all those big punk albums released that year, this revival just kept going and going and going through 1995 and 1996. And this is where we encounter the Warp Tour. While Lollapalooza was still the king of the touring alt-rock festivals, the Warp Tour, created by a skateboard fan named Kevin Lyman and his partner Ray Woodbury, was designed as a stripped-down, self-contained, punk-centric festival that could quickly and nimbly move from city to city. Tickets were cheap. Underage people were encouraged to attend. It was also very communal. Bands took turns running the nightly barbecues. Musicians gave music lessons to each other. And everybody basically pitched in and supported every other person on the tour. The first Warp Tour featured about 20 bands, including Sublime and No Doubt, the second year included double that amount, 
with some groups jumping on and off the tour, while others were there for the duration. Tons of these acts eventually went on to bigger things, and the effect the Warp Tour had on this new popularity of punk is incalculable. For example, the 96 tour featured this trio from San Diego, who was plugging an indie album called Cheshire Cat. They were called Blink-182. And here they did okay. One more note about the mid-90s punk revival. These new bands circled around to connect with the original pioneers. Groups like The Clash were constantly being name-checked. The Ramones, who actually sold very few records over the course of their career, became the object of worship and were asked to participate in Lollapalooza, selling a billion t-shirts in the process. Kids started taking an interest in bands like The Dead Kennedys and Flipper, The Vandals, Black Flag, Iggy Pop, Patti Smith, Minor Threat, and so many more. Some were uncompromising with their music. Others, like Blink-182, took punk to its maximum level of accessibility. Punk rock was so big in the middle 90s that even the Sex Pistols, a band that had blown up in spectacular fashion way back in 1978, was enticed to get back together. This is from a press conference on March 18, 1996, when they announced the Filthy Lucre Tour. It was a shambles, of course. Um, Johnny Hurst, are you on any prescribed medication? <laughs> And shortly thereafter, the original lineup of the Sex Pistols was on the road again, closing the loop between the punk of the 1970s and the revival of the 1990s. The next chapter in our look at the various alt-rock revivals will be a double-barreled one. Ska has come back not once, not twice, not three times, but four it's proven to be one of the most durable subgenres in all of alt-rock. We'll take that all apart next time on part two of alt-rock revivals. Podcasts of this program are always free and always available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about every other podcast distribution platform in this arm of the galaxy. Subscribe, download, and binge away. And please rate and share, too. It helps a lot. I have a website you can consult for all manner of things. It's ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every day. And if you're not getting the free daily newsletter, you're missing out on lots of news and recommendations and opinion. And should you need me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we can do that. And for all other inquiries, send an email to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Music